Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. So this is the last session that we are having. Oh, I know, I know, I know. But we're going to look at the last three Nevi'im today. And uh, in order to do that, of course, as always, we're going to historically background them. And I thought that by way of historical background, what that can provide us with is an opportunity to do a bit of a summary of, uh, of what we've done and where we're at, just from a historical point of view, for those who are kind of still a little confused about it all like myself. So let's do a timeline and I'm going to call this uh, I'm going to call this minus 800 and we're going to call this minus 500 and uh, 700, 600 and so let's remind ourselves of exactly what we did with the Nevi'im and with the Prophets. So we're looking at historical context and we're going to summarize that. So the first big historical context that we looked at, really our kind of historical landmark when we think about placing the prophets of Israel uh, and of the Bible on a historical landscape, is really here. That's the big landmark that we need to remember, which is kind of minus 720 and why is that huge? Because that, what hap- What is the big landmark that happens here? That is it. It is the fall of the northern kingdom. That is the ten, the ten tribes are taken away. And the northern kingdom, of course, was vanquished and ethnically cleansed by the Assyrians. So that really, that, and that kind of represents the height of Assyria's... Uh, power. There's a cluster of prophets around this event. My, minus 720, the fall of the northern kingdom. And uh, prior to that, prior to that, let's put these prophets on the timeline. Prior to the fall of the northern kingdom, who were the prophets in the north that were warning about that who were the prophets in the northern kingdom that were really highlighting the situation in the society and warning that it was all going to come crashing down if they didn't transform themselves as a society and as individuals it would be there's two big prophets that come to mind Hosea Hosea and sorry Amos so Hosea and Amos are here. So that's why, that's why that's an important landmark. And who is a prophet that is after the fall? We have a couple of prophets after the fall of the northern kingdom. We have a couple of prophets in the south who are really dealing with this ever-growing expansion of Assyria and are now warning the southern kingdom of Judah that it's all going to come crashing down unless there is a social transformation. Well, that is, that is really the 20-year period 
between the fall of the northern kingdom and the attempted siege on Jerusalem by the Assyrians. And that, of course, is where we see the big daddy prophet, Isaiah. So Isaiah is a massive prophet. And contemporary with Isaiah is Micha. Is Micha. So we have this cluster of prophets, one big daddy prophet, and a number of other prophets before and after this very important landmark. Then, if you recall, the Assyrians continue to expand. They can't get Jerusalem. They don't get Jerusalem. That's the event here. But they continue to expand and consolidate. And we have one prophet that emerges from this period of the height of Assyrian power. And that, of course, is the prophet Nahum. Because remember, he's the one who foretells the destruction of Assyria at a time when Assyria was at its height. So we looked at Nahum. Remember, on each of these prophets, we spent quite some time discussing. And then, then your next big landmark, really, if we're talking about the really crucial big landmarks that we need to know, your next big landmark would be, in fact, minus 587 and, or 586, and that would be the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Prior to that, there had been, I mean, 40 years earlier, 40, 50 years prior to that, there had been a big religious reformation that had happened under one of the later kings, Josiah. And that kind of kicked off the career of several prophets, that reformation. Several prophets who were active up to the destruction. Up to the so between the reform of Josiah, up to the destruction. And of course, the big daddy prophet of that period, which is a hundred years later, a century later from here, over a century later, and the big daddy prophet of that period was whom? Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is the big uber prophet of that period, but there are a number, there are a number of contemporaries that are important prophets, and they would be that are prophesying and, and, and communicating divine messages to the people from the Reformation of Josiah and Josiah's eventual assassination and, or, or death and then eventually uh, right up to the destruction of the temple. And they are... Sophonia? Well, Sophonia is one of them. And well, basically it's Habakkuk. Habakkuk and Sophonia. So, of course, uh, and, and, and here we have, here also we have the prophet Jonah, but the prophet Jonah was actually uh, not prophesying to Israel so much, except indirectly. Um, but Habakkuk and Sophania, everybody follow that? Is that after the destruction? No. I'll say again. This is the period, this is a period from the Reformation of Josiah, which is probably round about 625 or so, up until 587 and the destruction of the temple. That is the time, that is another cluster of prophets. 
The big daddy prophet is Jeremiah, and the minor prophets of that period are Habakkuk and Zephania. Is that clear to everybody? Then, after the destruction of the temple and the exile of the people, remember, remember that the exile happens in waves. There is a big wave that happens in 597. And there's another wave, of course, that happens in the actual destruction. The 597 wave took basically anybody who was part of the elite or the administration or the nobility or the educated classes. They all went off in 597. And 586 was the destruction. Everybody follow that? And after the destruction, then we have a big daddy prophet in exile after the destruction. After the destruction. So this prophet is in Babylon. His name is Ezekiel. Nothing. The only thing worse than calling out the answer is when you call it out wrong. And that, of course, is Ezekiel. So these are really the highlight moments of the first temple period as far as the crises and challenges that brought about the prophetic experience. And what is interesting to note, and this is interesting to note, and those of you who have your head around this will be able to grasp this, but not only do we have a cluster of prophets around each of these cataclysmic events, but each of these events and the rise of prophecy is allied with a particular leader. And that leader is a righteous leader. Right throughout the first temple period, which is a period of about 500 years, we have a lot of leaders. We have a lot of kings, a lot of other types of leaders. And 90% of them are awful. But sprinkled and dotted throughout that period are a few righteous kings. And so the prophets tend to cluster around the righteous kings. Perhaps that is because the righteous kings are the ones that allowed these prophets to communicate their messages effectively and encouraged their message. But who's the righteous leader of this particular crisis, in this particular challenge? Who was the righteous leader? Hezekiah, of course. Because Hezekiah is mates with the prophet Isaiah. And then who is, as I mentioned before, the righteous leader connected with the whole Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Tsefania period is, of course, Josiah. And Ezekiel is in exile. So Ezekiel is kind of, he's part of a different epoch, although he's kind of in the wake of all these events. But that idea about the rise of clusters of prophets around a righteous leader is one that we're going to look at today because leadership is a subject that is very, very emphasized in the prophets that we're going to be talking about. So that's really just a review and a summary of some of the historical background so we can see it very clearly, these two major cataclysms. And then the destruction of the temple... Ezekiel is in exile. And where is Ezekiel in exile? Don't call out, please. Where is Ezekiel in exile? 
I, I, even if you're the sort of person that knows the answer, just let, if it doesn't want to say, just let me know that you know the answer so I can even just see, I know he knows, how, rem- <laughs> how remotely absorbed this is. Where is Ezekiel in exile? He's in Babylon. The Babylonians destroyed the temple and they took everyone away. So Ezekiel is in Babylon. Now the Babylonians were pretty impressed with themselves. The Babylonians were very impressed with themselves. And uh, they had a pretty sophisticated civilization. And in fact, some of the things that even are around today, we kind of owe to uh, innovations made by the uh, Babylonians. But ultimately, uh, like so many great empires, Babylon was conquered. And the amazing thing is, those of you who have studied the history of the fall of Babylon, in 538, in minus 538, uh, would be aware of how astonishing that was because the Babylonians had no warning of that. This was not a gradual decline. It was very, very sudden. First of all, from a Jewish perspective, uh, who's in Babylon? Who's the nominal leaders of the Jewish community in exile in Babylon at this time? Who are the leaders? Whoever was left from the royal family we know that two kings were in exile. Yechoniah, who had been taken into exile in 597, he's still around. Well, he was around for a while because the Book of Kings tells you he's around for quite some time. And he's in prison for a lot of that. And the Babylonians bring him out of prison. That's kind of the beginning of a, of a slight restoration. And the other king that's there is Tzidkiyahu. Tzidkiyahu, remember, who was blinded. He was the last king of Judah and taken, blinded and taken into captivity. Yechoniah was the king that had been there since 597. He was the king that under Jehoiakim, if you remember, when Jeremiah was prophesying, people would say, he's coming back, he's coming back. But of course, he didn't come back. The temple was destroyed. Yechoniah and Tzidkiyahu are still in Babylon. But the Babylonians are actually, you know, some decades into the exile, the Babylonians are starting to treat them with some measure of respect, and they're according the exiled Judean community a status of some sort. But basically, we're in exile. And as we know, the prophet Jeremiah has already told the exiles in Babylon, in a letter that he wrote to Babylon, that they should really settle themselves down and get good homes and and uh, jobs and schools for the kids and you know they're going to be there for a while in fact they're going to be there for 70 years all right now when we say 70 years and on the one hand 70 years can seem like a long time it can and on the other hand we know that it's exactly 70 years since the end of the second world war So we have a very, very good kind of mental picture of what 70 years could look like in historical terms. But nevertheless, it's a chunk of time. But in minus 538, the Babylonians did not foresee the rise of of the Persians. And the Persians had themselves a new leader. We are talking about... Cyrus, of course, well, it's, no, Cyrus and Darius, different people, 
But Cyrus uh, was amazing. First of all, the Babylonians were kind of shocked. You know that Cyrus used his army. There, there was no way into Babylon. No way. In. The gates were big. I've ever seen kind of, you know, the, the, they've reconstructed those gates and they're impossible to get in. But uh, there was a water source that flowed into Babylon. Babylon was a city, not just a state. Um, it flowed into Babylon and it came uh, from a river. And so what Cyrus did was, but, but if you tried to get in under where the water came in, you know, you, you'd drown. So Cyrus actually uh, used his army to dam up an entire tributary of that river so that the water level would lower and his men could wade about knee height into the city underneath the walls through the, where the water went in. And before the Babylonians knew it, the Persians were in the city and the suburbs of the, of the city wreaking havoc and it was over and they took, uh, they took Babylon. And Cyrus, uh, and once you take Babylon, then you take all Babylon's possessions. And so Cyrus's famous decree, famous, famous decree, one of the most famous decrees in all of documented history, which we call the Decree of Cyrus. And people think, oh, the Decree of Cyrus, you know, that's kind of, oh, yes, the Bible talks about the Decree of Cyrus, and we know about the Decree of Cyrus, and they don't realize that we actually have the Decree of Cyrus, like in physical form. The Cyrus Cylinder in the British Museum is an uh, is one of the manifestations of the decree of Cyrus. And the decree of Cyrus was basically that nations that had been conquered by the Babylonians could return to their native lands and reconstruct their societies and that the Persian Empire, with the proper kind of applications, would help them to do that would help them to do that. That is why in the 20th century, the Balfour Declaration that happened uh, as a result of World War I and so on, the Balfour Declaration was kind of like seen in terms of that kind of Cyrus idea. Because, of course, one of the peoples that took advantage of the decree of Cyrus were the Jews. And they said, well, great, the Persians are going to let us go back and re-establish uh, a Jewish state in the land of Israel and rebuild the temple. And the Persians indeed assisted them to do that. Now, here's the thing. It's going to come as a bit of a shock to you, this. So be prepared. Imagine a generation where the kind of powers in the world, the superpowers in the world, allow the Jewish people to go back to the land of Israel to rebuild their land, their homeland. And not everybody goes. There are people who say, well, I've got quite comfortable existence here in exile. I've got a good job. My kids are at good schools. It's all working out for me. I'll put some money in a blue box every once in a while, but that's not for me. Imagine. Imagine what that would be like. <laughs> and so not everybody went back. In fact, only about 40,000 people went back to Zion. 
That decree of Cyrus was a massive game changer in history. Make no mistake, it was a big game changer for Jewish history. Those of you who are familiar with Birkat Hamazon, with the benching after meals on Shabbat or Yom Tov, when we sing Shir Hamaalot Beshuv Hashemet Shivat Sion Hayinu Kecholmim. It means that when God returned the captivity of Zion, it's talking about the Cyrus decree, we were like we were dreaming. We couldn't believe it. And all of those prophecies about the restoration of Zion were fulfilled before our own eyes. There are only two times in history, three if you count the, 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 the exodus from Egypt, but there are really only two times in fully documented history of the last two and a half thousand years that that has happened. One is the Cyrus decree and the other is the 20th century. And people sometimes get blasé about the era and generation in which they live, a generation that sees prophecy fulfilled with their own eyes. I mean, it's one thing 70 years, and God says, I'll bring you back to that place. That's astonishing. Because at the time, no one would have thought, oh, yeah, yeah, where are the Babylonians going in 70 years? But it happened. And equally astonishing, on the other side of the scale, is 2,000 years. And they're both, for different reasons, astonishing. But 40, around 40,000 people, 42,000 people came back to Zion to rebuild it. But when they got back, you know, the situation was not clear and the situation was not easy. They really, they did have the backing of the Persians, but they had a lot of work to do. Now, who were the leaders that came back? That group, that kind of Zionist wave it really was, that really was a Zionist wave that came back from Babylon to the land of Israel in the minus 530s. They were led by two extraordinary individuals. One of them was the grandson of the last king. And his name was Zerubbabel Zerubbabel ben Shaltiel and he was a pretty righteous guy and he was a pretty interesting guy and the other leader this is the first wave Zerubbabel ben Shaltiel who is the he is a prince he is a prince he's the grandson of the last Judean king, but he is a prince. He's not a king. In fact, he's referred to by the Tanakh as Fachat Yehuda, meaning, and Fachat was a title given to him by the Persians. He was kind of like going to be in the role of a governor, but he was a prince. The Persians were not going to see the Judeans reestablish the monarchy. So that's one thing. He was allowed to retain his royal status, but he couldn't call himself king. We're going to look at that in a second. Zerubbabel ben Shaltiel. And the other is, the other figure is Yehoshua or Joshua 
בן יהוד צדק. And יהושע בן יהוד צדק was the grandson of the last high priest. So these two, the grandson of the last king and the grandson of the last priest, came back to the land of Israel to rebuild the society and to rebuild the temple, one priest and one prince. prince. A prince and a priest. All right? That's the... Now, because really, I'm just looking at the time here, we, we were still dealing with historical detail, but fortunately, the one book that I want to get through before the break is one of the shortest books in Tanakh. After Avadji, it's probably the shortest, only two chapters. And I said to myself, let's spend the first half doing historical revision and background. And then, once we understand this, the book of Haggai, the book of Haggai becomes not easier to understand because it's a very deep book, but becomes easier to contextualize. And I can talk about it because I'm actually a very big fan of the book of Haggai. It's only two chapters. But in many ways, it is a book that perhaps more than any other book in the Bible is perhaps most relevant to our generation. Perhaps more than any other book in the Bible. It's extremely interesting. What happens is they come back and they have a lot of work to do. I mean, really, they've got to get their hands dirty. Physically, they've got to remove the rubble. And they've got to start kind of building from scratch. And they've got to start planting. You know, remember that we're still dealing with kind of mostly agrarian economies. And they've got to build infrastructure. They've got to build a society and a community. And it's not simple. And they've got to do all that fairly quickly. So, they, as soon as they get back to Jerusalem, they go up on the Temple Mount and they clear away the rubble and they build an altar. And they kind of lay some foundation stones for a temple. But then they get busy with other things. Like setting up the economy. And the altar's there and the foundation stones are there, but the temple is not built. The temple is not built. And it stays like that for around 18 years. And that is the context. That is the context in which enters this extraordinary prophet called Haggai. Meanwhile, during the course of that 18 years, they had been beset by some opposition and obstacles to this project. Some of the locals came and said, we object. The um, administration, the, the British administration in Transjordan, there were some local Samaritans there who, had, who were the peoples that had been repopulated by the Assyrians generations before. They all came and they said, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. They had to write back to Persia to get the decree of Cyrus reconfirmed. Of course, by this time, Cyrus had died and Cyrus was replaced by Cambyses and there were other Persian leaders until a major another major Persian player 
came to the throne, and that was Darius. So by the time they write back to get the decree confirmed, it's with Darius, not with Cyrus, and that's why we start with here. So, so start again, Deborah. I just want to contextualize. On the first day of the sixth month, this word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, uh, son of Shaltiel, the governor of Judea, and to uh, Joshua, son of Yechozedek, the high priest. Okay, so now we know. This is when you open the book of Haggai. Bang, we know exactly the context, and now we see the background to it. So the temple has not been, we can calculate, it's been, it, 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 they've been there for 18 years since laying the foundation, and they haven't built it, because they've been busy doing other things. And the prophet Haggai says, Ko amar Hashem tzvaot lemor. Thus says God, this people have said, and, and, and if you remember one phrase from the book of Haggai, it's this one, because this is how it's kind of summarized. Lo et bo et bet Hashem lehibanot. The people are saying that it's not yet time to build the temple. It's not yet time to build the temple. We have other things that we have to do first. It's not yet time. And that is where then Haggai talks about the fact, in the name of God, saying, look, you're all sitting in these comfortable houses, but there's no temple, where's my house? Now, you can read the chapter for yourself, because on the one level, that is kind of the message of the first chapter. It's really about the fact that it almost seems like God is complaining to the people that they've been very busy doing other things, but they haven't built the temple yet. And that would be one reading, but I think it would be a very superficial reading of what Haggai is saying. I want to spend a few minutes delving deep into Haggai, because basically, basically, the dinner table takeaway summary of the prophet Haggai is that he's the prophet that gets people going to build the temple. It having taken some time, he's the one that arouses the leadership to construct the temple. And because God's like saying, where's my temple? But it's not so simple. It's not so simple. First of all, first of all, there were several possible ways this could have gone. And there are several reasons why the temple had not been built. And certainly there are two or three major reasons we could speculate. The first one is obvious. The first one is obvious. And that is that we're just busy. Survival. You know, we got, we got, we got crops and we got buildings and we got to get shelter and food and all these other things and that takes time yes I know it's been 18 years but it takes time to set stuff up that's a very obvious reason and that appears on the surface to be the reason that God is complaining about this one of the things that you when you read the book of Haggai you can sense underneath is the fact that Zerubbabel having arrived back in Persia 
is kind of maybe prevaricating about what type of relationship he's going to have with Persia. Either he's going to have the kind of relationship that the Persians want him to have, which is a self-governing autonomy, but allegiance to Persia. Uh, therefore no king and you pay your taxes and you be good boys and girls and we'll leave you alone to let you do your own thing or is he going to be the kind of king like his grandfather and those before him those last kings of Judah who believed that they were going to play power politics and geopolitical kind of chess and that they were going to enhance their own power and governance and autonomy and create this thing called you know the kingdom of judah which was it going to be so that's an interesting idea and they would have actually been concerned to make sure that they paid but probably the persians were also aware that they weren't going to get a lot of tax out for the first few years there are two deeper reasons why they may not have been in a hurry to build the temple these are reasons that are kind of um not necessarily on the surface of Haggai, but they're underneath. And the first reason is this, and it's really, really powerful, and it's, it's one that I want to address, and then we'll take a break. And that is this. What was the whole point in the prophecies of Jeremiah and the later prophets of the first temple? What was their point? Their point was that you are spending too much time focusing on the temple. Remember that famous chapter 7 and chapter 26 of Jeremiah when he says everybody's running around going, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem. We have the temple. Nothing's going to happen to us. We are inviolable. And now you're telling us, so, so therefore, and in fact it was our overemphasis on the temple and the religious structures and sacrifices that caused the destruction of the temple, and now you're telling us that we've got to build the temple. So the answer really, when you read Haggai, because Haggai in the first chapter goes through how the ways in which the economy is not working it's not working just as an economy because you haven't built the temple. So, of course, it's not the case that you need to emphasize the material over the spiritual, nor to emphasize the spiritual over the material, but in fact, it is about balance. Every society needs a spiritual focus, but that focus can't be the be-all and end-all of your existence. That is a huge message that's coming out of Haggai. The second, the second reason, which is really also very, very poignantly highlighted in the book of Haggai as to why they may not have built the temple, is because all of the prophets of the first temple, when they talked about the fact that the temple would be destroyed, and we would go into exile and we would be and it would be rebuilt remember that's why they're prophets because they prophesied that all of them describe something pretty spectacular well yeah pretty much but 
something that was going to be amazing. I mean, God was going to come and just blow everyone away. And we were going to get this unbelievable. I mean, read Ezekiel. Read Ezekiel. The last eight, nine chapters of the book of Yechezkel describe this new temple. Let alone the descriptions contained in many of the other prophets about how this salvation was going to come about. So they're going, well, you know, that doesn't really match the reality because kind of we get this guy Cyrus and he issues a decree and we come back. It's all pretty mundane. And we don't, we don't, and oh, as for this building, this unbelievable, massive impressive spectacular structure we don't even have the resources to barely feed ourselves and you want us to go up there and kind of build this thing the prophets are talking about so there's another reason why they may not have built it and that is also emerging because in one of the most beautiful pathetic moments in Tanakh God says to them in the prophet Haggai he goes look I know that you're expecting this big, spectacular lecture. But for the moment, I just need you to build a temple. I just need you to have a spiritual focus. Take some wood, take a few bricks, take some wood, go up on the temple mount and just build it. Just build it. It will be small, it will be simple, it will be basic, but just build it. And I will be honored by it. It is the effort that I want. Not the final impressive result. It is just the effort. And so they do that. And once they do that, aroused by the prophet Haggai, because and this beautiful sentence at the end of the first chapter, where it says, Vayar Hashem. And God aroused at Ruach Zerubavel ben Shaltiel Fachat Yehu Pachat Yehuda, at Ruach Yehoshu ben Yotzdaka Kohen Agadol, at Ruach Kol Sherit Am. The spirit of these of the leadership and the spirit of the people, Vayavov Vayasum Alacha, and they came and they did the work. Bevet Hashem Tzvot Elohehem in the in the house of God. It wasn't called the temple; it was called the Beit Hamikdash. It was called the house of God, Beit Hashem. How long? Do you think it took after 18 years it sat there waiting to be built how long did it take to be built once the leadership was inspired to build it based on the words of the prophet three weeks it is very very much like that story you know that story about the guy who finds um, searching through some old jackets um, clearing out his cupboards or his attic in his old jackets and in one of his old jackets he finds a ticket for a pair of shoes that he sent in for repair 10 years before, right? So he looks at the ticket and he goes, oh, no way, right? I'd forgotten about that. Anyway, he goes to the street and the shoe repair stock shop is still there. So he walks in and he says to the man, he goes, look, you know, this is crazy, but I found a ticket uh, from 10 years ago to repair a pair of shoes. I never picked them up. I forgot about them. He goes, there's no way, you know, you'd still have them. So he goes, the guy looks at the ticket and he goes, look, I'm not even, I'm not even using these tickets anymore, right? But I, I'll go at the back and have a look, right? So he goes at the back and he comes in and he goes, you wouldn't believe it, we got your pair of shoes. And the guy goes, oh, fantastic. And he goes, yeah, they'll be ready next Tuesday. <laughs> right? So it's, it, it, it is very, very similar, this idea that suddenly... As a result of inspired leadership, 
the, the whole thing just took a few weeks and it was up. And that is why at the beginning of the second chapter, really, God says to them, well done, Yishakoach to you, Chazak to Zerubbabel ben Shaltiel, Chazak to Yeshua ben Yotzadak, and Chazak to all the people for doing that which needed to be done. In other words, it doesn't have to be this mind-blowing structure, just go up on the Temple Mount, take some wood, build a simple structure, but one that acts as your spiritual focus, and then your economy will be blessed. And then you'll have the balance, and it will go on the right way. Yeah? yeah. Uh, it's very, very interesting, because um, the book of Haggai, as you get towards its end, it's only two chapters, also contains uh, some inf- interesting warnings for Zerubbabel about how history is going to play out. One of the things that they did not do, they did not restore the kingship, as I said earlier. And that had kind of uh, an impact on the history of the Second Temple. The priesthood was restored fully. Uh, That is why those who mention Ezra and Nehemiah, many people think that the Second Temple was built by Ezra and Nehemiah, but in fact the Second Temple was built by Zerubbabel ben Shaltiel and Yoshua ben Yotzadak and Haggai. Uh, and Ezra and Nehemiah didn't come for some 20, 30, perhaps even 40 years after that, where they had to fix up some of the problems that had ensued in the early generations that had built the temple. But uh, the book of Haggai is a stunning book. And why is it relevant for today? It's relevant for today because we live in a generation that has come back to the land of Israel. And there are many, many people in Israel... Uh, as you know, Israel is a complex place, and there are people who are demanding to rebuild the temple now. Uh, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that those people have the kind of balance that Haggai is talking about. And then there are people who would be completely uninterested in 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 the land of Israel having any spiritual focus, and they're also not in accord with the kind of balance between those two aims so I urge you to read the book when you get home and read it carefully with that in mind some of the parts of the second chapter will are confusing if we had more time I mean I've I've talked about it extensively in other places I actually spent a lot of time studying Haggai and going deep into it because the second chapter is very very um, complex and he's asking questions of the priests and, and there are metaphors there about purity and impurity but basically God if, if, if God can be allegorized as the priest in that, in that second uh, chapter, it's like a priest who has to decide whether to contaminate themselves by going into exile to rescue that which is already sanctified, which is really the whole metaphor of God bringing the people out of exile. One of the interesting things is, apart from any other consideration, is a kind of Haggai is reminding Zerubbabel and warning him and reminding him and saying, look, yes, it's miraculous and amazing that we came back, but remember that you have a commitment. Cyrus gave you permission to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So you can't take advantage of that just to come back and set up a kind of secular state. He gave you permission to come back and rebuild the temple. So rebuild the temple is something you have to do. But there was a lot of opposition to it. Uh, Just as we find opposition to the Jews returning today, we found it then, and we had to rely on the big powers uh, to uh, 
reaffirmed their permission for us to be in the land. So the ref- the, it never ceases to astonish the reflections between different ages of history and how that works. Guys, let's have a sweet break and we'll come back and we've got two Nevi'im to discuss. All right, we'll make a start now that everybody's here. Uh, so we know that uh, the return happened between 538 and 518 when they finally got the temple building. That meant that that really the 70 years that Yirmiyahu talked about, that Jeremiah talked about, was between the temples, the destruction of one temple and the rebuilding of the other. The conquest of Babylon by Persia happened 50 years into the exile and it took 20 years to get the temple up and running. So that's your 70 year period. And so really Haggai, Haggai is this period here, really just round about, you know, five minus 520, 518 and that period. Uh, and then he's followed by two very important prophets that are clustered around this rebuilding of the temple. So uh, here's your game changer moment, the rebuilding of the temple. We have Haggai and the next prophet uh, that we find in Tanakh that's also in that period is kind of a little bit later into the reign of Darius is Zechariah. But I want to I want to talk because uh, there really is there really, I mean, all the prophets are unique, but there really is no book like Zechariah, like Zechariah. It is just mind-blowing. Uh, the first thing I want to point out about Zechariah, when you read it, it's 14 chapters, but the, most, well, the first thing you'll notice is that really the book is kind of divided into two sections. Chapters 1 to 8, chapters 1 to 8 are more or less talking about his own times. He's prophesying to his generation. And chapters 9 to 14, those last five chapters are just, just, he's talking about, um, look, all the mystics of the Jewish tradition agree that with everything said and done, the book of Zechariah, those chapters 9 to 14, are probably the most explicit and ecstatic messianic descriptions uh, and kind of discussing really what the messianic age is about and discussing what the uh, messianic process is and all of the big hints about when the Messiah is going to come and how to recognize the generation that the Messiah is going to come in and the end of days and the full restoration of Zion and the full restoration of the glory of the Jewish people, uh, they're all there. Which, of course, has lent Zechariah to Pesher throughout the ages. People remember what Pesher is. Yeah, I mean, I've touched on Pesher before. In fact, I touched on Pesher a couple of weeks ago when I talked about Habakkuk. Perush is commentary. But Pesher is when you explain the prophets in the light of your own time, saying they're talking about now. Remember we talked about Habakkuk, how that famous Pesher on Habakkuk that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls? So obviously there's been Pesher on Zechariah. But in our generation, when you open up chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 of Zechariah, it's almost like you're reading the news. 
it's very difficult not to imagine that, you know, it's, so all the great messianic references come from there. But, uh, I, I, we're going to talk a little bit about the first few chapters of Zechariah, because Zechariah is a contemporary of Haggai. And, yes, Deborah. Is it possible that the two halves were written by different people? I was reading it, it just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, obviously... Obviously, like we have with Isaiah, uh, that theory is around, that, you know, there's two, possibly even three, and the same is with Zechariah. Some people divide Zechariah into two, and sometimes even three different books, and therefore suggest they may be different people, but uh, they're put together for a reason. The rabbis considered them as having the same author for very good reasons, and those reasons, I think, still hold in terms of the language, in terms of some of the uh, major themes. I'm going to touch upon those. It's a very, very good thing you raised that because it's not just a distinction that's, oh, okay, so there's two themes. There really are... It, it's, yeah, it's like one, he's kind of sitting in a room talking like this, and the other is he's taken some LSD and he's wandering in a field. Well, yes, both of them have that duality where they are calm, but they are also ecstatic. Uh, and Zachar is, is, is seriously ecstatic from chapters 9 to 14. But we, uh, we can't make full determinations now on, 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 the, uh, uh, on the literary background. Zachar is a contemporary of Haggai. It's during the time of Darius. So the temple's kind of just getting up and running. And Zachar is coming to talk to the people about a kind of what's happened and how they've arrived at where they are, and how to really establish uh, the direct spiritual direction and vision for the future. And in doing so, he's going to talk quite a bit about leadership, and he's going to talk a little bit about history as well. And that's why it's a very, very interesting. I just, If you focus in Zechariah, there's certain key points at which to focus, and in the time that we have, we're going to use a couple of those key points. <laughs> the first is that in chapter 1, as Zechariah tells you who he is, uh, it's the second year of Darius, and uh, the word of God came to Zechariah, the son of Berachiah ben Ido, the prophet. <coughs> and uh, in the second sentence, and I want you, those of you who understand a bit of Hebrew, I want you just to listen to this. Katsaf Hashem alavoteichem katsif. God was angry with your fathers, or meaning with your ancestors. He was angry. And he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean, you know, your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He means your more immediate ancestors, the people, the people who brought the debacle here. Katsaf Hashem alavotechem katsef. Because right throughout that period, and right throughout the first temple period, God sent many prophets, some of whom we study today. And they all gave a series of messages, and we've looked some of the great, maybe four or five great themes that the prophets have been talking about, but the most important of them, and the most important theme in their intense spiritual revolution that they effected over this couple of centuries 
is summarized absolutely laser-like by Zechariah in the next verse when he absolutely pinpoints the essence of the prophetic message in a way that's just not matched. And that is Shuvu Eli return to me says God and I shall return to you. It is the immense message of Teshuvah which is not a bad thing for us to be discussing the week before Rosh Hashanah. The idea of return. All of this is summarized in the concept of return. Return to an authentic existence. Return to a more balanced and spiritually focused existence. Return to honesty and integrity and authenticity in your dealings with people around you and in your own life. And I shall return to you, says God, and you will be filled uh, with divine spirit and the world itself will be transformed. So it's a very, very important thing, and I'm, and I'm asking you to bear that in mind, because when we look at Malachi, it's a very different opening. And in fact, uh, so that, that point that Zechariah's beginning statements are to remind the people of why prophets are around and why the voice of God is constantly calling them. Now, quite almost immediately, and, and although, although they're not as ecstatic as his visions in chapters 9 to 14, Zechariah starts having some pretty strange visions, right from chapter 2. And, he gets, and some of these visions are so perplexing, there's, you know, there's different colored horses, and there's this, and then there's women flying through the air, and there's scrolls, and there's this, and there's that. There's, there's a great many things, totally, but, but they're, they're visions, they're incomprehensible visions, but they're calm. They're not ecstatic, they're kind of almost like, like puzzles. In fact, they are so enigmatic that Zachariah himself doesn't know what they mean, and he says sometimes, what does this mean? And sometimes he gets told... And sometimes he gets what they mean, and sometimes he gets told, that's not for you to know, you just tell it. But one vision, uh, and, and there are many visions, we don't have time to go into all the visions, because they all have a great many ways in which they've been interpreted. But there's one vision that I just want to talk about, because if you're going to think of one vision of Zechariah, it's this. Uh, because this one he's actually told. And... Uh, uh, it's difficult to know exactly what it looks like, but this is what he describes. Yeah? And you'll find this. Read chapters 3, 4, and you'll find this vision. And there's another reason. There's a re there, and not only is this vision explained, but it's explained on two levels. This is what it represents, and this is the deep message. So I'm going to spend a few minutes on that. And if this is the take-home from Zechariah, this is what we take from these visions. He sees a menorah. So let's draw a menorah. He sees a menorah. And on either side of the menorah, he sees an olive tree. 
please pardon my quite uh, inept drawing. My five-year-old daughter draws better than this. But he sees an olive tree on either side of the menorah. And the olive trees are absolutely full with completely ripe olives that are so saturated that the oil from the olives, as they are on the trees, they're not even picked, the oil from the olives is dripping down into the menorah. So there's no third-party process. In fact, the oil required from the menorah is coming straight from the trees and being funneled to wherever it needs to go into the menorah, and the menorah obviously has flames based on this oil. And that one, Zechariah is told what that means. These two trees represent Zerubbabel ben Shaltiel and Yehoshua ben Yehotzadak, the prince and the priest, the two leaders of this new generation that has built this new temple. They represent inspired leadership, what leadership should look like. And if leadership is true and divinely inspired and righteous, then there inspiration and their leadership which is the oil goes directly into the menorah which symbolizes the temple because God says in this unbelievably famous verse that some of you will be familiar with but actually comes from the fourth chapter of Zechariah as a result of this vision in a description of what is genuine leadership, what is genuine Jewish leadership, and what is the foundation of a genuine, authentic Jewish state in the land of Israel. And listen carefully, because some of you might actually be quite alarmed at this. <laughs> but it's, it really is such an amazing summary of the whole of the prophetic message about leadership. Lovachayil, not through valor, velovakoach, and not through military force. Ki ima beruchi amar Hashem, but with my spirit, says God. When you set up this structure of the temple and of this new state that you're constructing in the land of Israel. It is not built by virtue of your might. It is not built by virtue of force or power. It is built only through the Spirit of God, which, if properly channeled, goes straight from the trees directly into the menorah to become the flame. Really, that kind of reflects the whole thing that the prophets have been going on and on and on about, about how the more you try to grab for power, the more you are simply constructing a false reality around yourself that will eventually crash down. Only through divine spirit, which only emerges 
through authentic righteous living can you build the true edifice which is the second temple so that is that's that's just one of Zechariah's visions that he sees um, who's going to read for me very quick just one verse chapter 4 it's verse 6 I just want to hear some translations of that Perfect. Yeah, go, go, go. Um, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not, not by might nor by power, but, might, but by my spirit, said the Lord of hosts. Yeah, I mean, the, th- the thing is that that comes back again to what I mentioned when we talked about the prophet Haggai, that in fact... Uh, Zerubbabel that may be hinting to the fact that Zerubbabel was perhaps looking to expand his own power ambitions perhaps now in chapter 7 they ask Zechariah an interesting question and it's a question that's been asked at different times throughout Jewish history most of the you know that in the Jewish calendar there are fast days you familiar with that right now, some, there's really only one fast day mandated by, mandated by the Torah, and that's Yom Kippur. All of the other fast days are rabbinic. They come after the Torah, and they all have to do with the destruction of the temple. Whether we're talking about Asarab Tevet, whether we're talking about Shiva Sarba Tammuz, whether we are talking about Tisha B'Av, whether we are talking about Tzom Gedalia, they are all to do with the destruction of the temple. So they come to Zechariah and they go, Oh, now that we're rebuilding the temple, do we need to observe these fast days? Good question. Yeah, not a bad question. It doesn't really get answered in chapter 7 because they're talking about other things, but if you read chapter 8, uh, you'll see that, in fact, uh, God says, uh, no, you're okay, you're cool. You don't need to fast, and in fact, uh, you should be having a Yom Tov on those days. You should actually be rejoicing. That then got reversed, of course, with the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans, you know, over 500 years later. And that question got raised again, now in our generation that we've returned to the land of Israel uh, but the fasts have not yet been abolished because we have not yet built the temple (coughs) when I lived in Jerusalem and for some of uh, well we were living in Tel Aviv but um, we did spend uh, quite some time I lived for at least a year in the old city and uh, we tried to um, I was, and once again, you know, reminded of Haggai, you know, just go up and build the thing. Um, one, of the, one, of the, one of the things that I was seeing was that people that were agitating for some sort of Jewish presence on the Temple Mount were seeing it in terms of an all or nothing. So you had to get rid of Alaxi, you had to get rid of the Dome of the Rock, and you had to rebuild the Temple, and, you know, they're running around, they create the menorah, they've got, they've got the priestly garments, they go to the Temple. And I was thinking, you know, just start, Shwai shwai, just just start slowly. And is there any reason why we couldn't negotiate with the waqf for say 16 square meters or something like that on the Temple Mount where we would have a minyan every day 
And Jews around the world could pay a gold coin to actually have the privilege of praying at that minyan, and that money would go to feed the poor of Jerusalem, regardless of who they were. Arab, Christian, Jew, whatever. It was a beautiful idea we tried to set that up. And maybe, please God, one day that idea will come up because it would diffuse a lot of tension. At the moment, Jewish people are not allowed to pray on Harabayat. It's the only place in the world where Jews are officially not allowed to pray. You're allowed to go up and walk around, but if a person is seen moving their lips while walking by themselves, they are immediately arrested and taken off the Temple Mount. That's today, ladies and gentlemen. If you wander off by yourself, you can wander off by yourself, but if you see, and you'll be watched all the time. So you're not allowed to pray. <laughs> no, that's, I'm not talking about the Western Wall. I'm talking about on the Temple Mount. That's above the Western Wall. That's where the temple is. So there is a way in which we might be able to... And if we could do that, and if we could effect some kind of transformational change in that way, we'd, we would diffuse tension, and we would perhaps uh, arrive at a situation where we would you know, get closer to not having to fast anymore on the days in which the temple was destroyed. I just want to come back to finish off Zechariah, because really those chapters 9 to 14, you can read them and you go, oh, you know, LSD, whatever, but... They're all leading to this massive crescendo that happens in chapter 14 because uh, Zechariah's vision of the Messianic age is amazing. I mean, I talked about how stunning Zephaniah's vision is a couple of weeks ago and we've talked about, I mean, Isaiah's vision of the world in the Messianic age is incredible. But Zechariah's vision of Yerushalayim, you know, rivers coming out of it, like Ezekiel says, rivers will come out of it, the Mount of Olives splits, all the rest of it, the nations all stream there, particularly on Sukkot. Uh, we talk about, I mean, many commentaries like the Barbanel see in Zechariah, they see the kind of reconciliations that will happen with Islam and Christianity. And all of that is there. And it's all leading to this incredible crescendo where he says and let's read it rather than I mean we know it by heart but let's read it I'm going to read this in Hebrew um, it's, it's, it's verse it's chapter 14 verses 8 and 9 and it will be on that day living waters will come out of Jerusalem now that on the one hand could be physical but it's also of course deeply metaphoric that the spirit, the divine spirit, emerges from Jerusalem. Both summer and winter, it'll go to both sides, to the east and the west. It'll go from the med to the dead, via Jerusalem. And then, this is where all of Zechariah's ecstatic prophecies are leading to, God will be king over all the earth. On that day, God will be one and his name one. And we say that verse at the end of Aleinu. In other words, 
all of the different faith systems that recognize Jerusalem as central to their focus. They might have different ways in which they approach God, but there will be a full recognition that it is the one God. And that recognition will emerge from us as well as from the other nations. It will not simply be about the other nations agreeing with the Jews. It will be our realization that about Allah and about God and about everything like that. Really, it's one God that is behind the divine message in history, in human history. It's a very, very big point. All right, I want to start talking about Malachi. There's so much more we could say about Zechariah because it really is such an astonishing book. If you really want to see amazing things in Zechariah, then you read uh, chapter 9. And those of you who are familiar with Hebrew will realize that sometimes he breaks into kind of almost modern Hebrew and uses words in a very interesting way. And uh, chapter 9 and the whole concept of, of the Messiah, our picture of the Messiah a poor man riding on a donkey and what that means and what the, what the deep layers, mystical meaning of all that is. All right. Now, remember how we began, how Zechariah begins. Zechariah begins, Katsafti alavotechem katsef. I was angry. I had ketsef. Ketsef is kind of like furious, rough. I was really, really, really jigged off with your ancestors. Like, seriously. Whereas if you look at the words of Malachi, Ahavti etchem amar Hashem. I loved you, says God. I loved you. I've always loved you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Now who, now, now, who is Malachi? Malachi, the rabbis tell us, it's very possible, they say, that Malachi is Ezra. That's always fascinated me, that view, because if that view was said by a chazafresi 19th century biblical critic, they would be going, oh, no, 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 he's saying Malachi is Ezra. But the rabbis actually tell you that Malachi is Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah were two individuals that came back at some time here, maybe 480, 470, to revitalize and reconstruct and really kind of get the whole thing properly up and running because it was a bit of a balagan, it was a bit of a mess. Ezra come, Ezra, they come from Ezra, you know, coming from Babylon, Nehemiah coming from Persia, and they uh, are with the permission of the Persian authorities. Ezra's focus is more the religious and social life of the people. He comes back and finds that basically most of the men have married out. They've married local women. He makes them divorce them. That, that, until then, in fact, throughout the first temple period, intermarriage, there was no such thing as intermarriage. If you found a woman, doesn't matter who it was, and you liked her, you married her. She became part of Israel. Boom. Whereas these guys, you know, uh, Ezra felt that the continuum of the Jewish people needed some kind of uh, tightening up. Very, very nicely put. And really, our whole kind of panic over intermarriage and assimilation emerges from that period where we say that, you know, and not only that, 
But in order to do that, you therefore need to enforce matrilineal descent. Matrilineal descent. So basically now, basically since the time of Ezra, if you are part of the Jewish people, unless you actually come to the Jewish people in a conversion process, but to be born Jewish means that your mother was Jewish. Not your father, but your mother was Jewish. And that's kind of a shift that happened around that time. And Ezra does that. So it's very, very interesting historical circumstances around there. And Nehemiah, and of course Ezra establishes basically the Torah as the constitution of the Jewish people. So Ezra is kind of like the first proto-super rabbi. He's like really kicks off what we would call the rabbinic project. Nehemiah comes and Nehemiah is more focused on defense of the city setting up its walls and the temple structures and the, and the things that are going on in the temple with all the priests and organizing all the different rotations and shifts and watches. In other words, very technical stuff. And the two of them together get Jerusalem up and running. So when we say that Ezra and Malachi, but Malachi is doing something else. Malachi is the last Navi. Malachi is the last prophet. Malachi... No. Uh, yeah, it is... It is, it is, but the context here is more my messenger, because Malach also means messenger. You're right, Malachi means my angel, but Malachi is really in this context. That's why it's the same word. But we don't know if that was his name, or I mean, we assume it was his name, and not just something that was, even though the word Malachi, as in my messenger, is... Um, is actually mentioned in the book. But Malachi tells you that he's basically the last prophet. What happens after Malachi, and Malachi is here, what happens after Malachi is that uh, divine communications come through, do no longer come through nevoah, prophecy, but come through a level that we call Ruach HaKodesh, which means kind of the Holy Spirit or divine inspiration. But straight out Nivuah, where a person is a complete, in their life and in their words, a complete conduit of the divine message, is no longer there. But in Malachi it's interesting, because Malachi starts this whole thing where we're basically like a bunch of Grobe Jung, we're, we're arguing with God. We're arguing with God. It's astonishing. It's done from God's point of view, but it's a conversation that makes us look pretty chutzpahdik. Because God says, I loved you. And we say, In what way have you loved us? How have you loved us exactly, God? I mean, look what we've had to go through. And basically he answers, well, hello, you're still here. And, you know, look... Esav is the brother of Yaakov, but Esav, the Edomites, they, they got geschmeist, and where are they now? Whereas you got geschmeist, but now I've brought you back and you're here. That's love. And so on. Price. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there's something else going on in Malachi. And I've got to tell you that, uh, that, that when you read the book several times, it kind of starts to, uh, it's not an easy book to fully understand on the surface. But it, it, its messages start to penetrate after you read it a couple of times. And you see what's going on there, I think, is this. That generation had a very, very similar question to our generation. 
And I know that some of you are nodding your heads and thinking of what that question is, but I don't know if the question I'm about to say is the question that you think is that question. It relates to something that was said earlier, and that is this. Do we really want to rebuild the temple? Do we really want to institute what the temple is actually about, which is sacrifice, animal sacrifice? We've been in out of that system for two millennia. And basically, certainly for most people probably living in, you know, St. Corfilda, that the idea, the idea that we would take, you know, a lamb or a goat uh, in Jerusalem and go and put an altar and slaughter it, and like, that, that's kind of like, whoa. Like, really? That's just not where we're at. And in fact, as you know, for many of the prophets, they were a bit anti-sacrifice as well. But now we're back here, we're back in Israel, we've got this temple, and, you know, that's kind of the thing that's done, is like we, we're doing animal sacrifices. So people's heart wasn't really in it. They were going through the rites, they were going through the motions. And I think the real message inside Malachi, when you read it, is, okay, that's the form of worship at that particular stage in history, in the ancient world. But the real message is, is one about whatever the rituals and demands on your form of worship, don't do it. Don't do it at a minimum. Don't do it half-heartedly. Either do it or don't do it. But if you do do it, do it in a way that is befitting and respectful to, to God and to the whole uh, project that God has given you to do in Jerusalem and in the land of Israel. Seems to be the basic theme of what's happening in the first couple of chapters of Malachi in this very interesting conversation that we're having with God very frank conversation but really Malachi is about the third yes no prophet actually told the No. The only Haggai. Haggai is the only prophet who actually said, you need to build another temple. And he's already in the generation that came back. I mean, and basically he's the prophet that would, because all these other prophets, there is a temple. You follow? Then the temple's destroyed, then there's an exile, and then we get Haggai saying, you guys have got to build a temple. Which is interesting. Which is interesting, because as we said before, you go back to before the first temple was built, you know, David, King David wanted to build the temple, and God says, did I ask for a temple? Did I ask for a temple? I don't remember asking for a temple. And King David says, yes, but I want to build your temple, I want to build a house of God that's going to be glorious, it's going to house the divine presence, and God says, look, I didn't ask for it, but if you want to do it, you can. It can be done, but it won't be you that does it. It'll be your son that does it. Uh, and yet Haggai is coming back saying, let's build a temple. So, different generation, different kind of requirements. But I want to I look at the... I want to look at really... But the third chapter of Malachi is really a very, very significant theological discussion.
And once again, it's all about returning. Once again, if you look at chapter, if you look at verse 7, once again, once again, Malachi comes back to the same verse that was enunciated by Zechariah in the seventh verse of chapter 3. Shuvu elai va'ashuva aleichem. Return to me and I will return to you. The great, great, great message of the prophets. What are the messages of the prophets? First of all, first of all, your society is corrupt and it needs transformation. You have an overemphasis on religious ritual or a complete absence of any spiritual feeling. And both of those paths lead to a corrupt society. Is he you, to the priests in he's talking, yeah, he's talking to the this, this is I'm summing up now all the prophets. All the prophets. They're talking to priests, they're talking to kings, they're talking to people. And they're even talking to nations. So you want to fix it. So we're going to give this, we're going to talk about this theme called Teshuvah. This theme called transformation. It has to be interior. It can't be exterior. You, as the prophet Yoel reminded us, you can't just sit in sackcloth and ashes and fast. You have to actually go on that inner reflective journey. And if you do, then you change yourself and the world around you is transformed. First of all, your immediate circle, then your society, then your nation. And once nations transform themselves, then humanity can transform itself. And that is the messianic age. The prophets are also telling us that God is not merely the God of Israel, but the God of the whole world. There's a universal divine. The universal divine demands justice from all nations. And the prophets are also telling us that what happens to the people of Israel as individuals is a microcosm of what happens in the world with the nations. And what Israel goes through is a consequence of the way nations relate to them. All summed up as shuvu elai va'ashuva alechem. Return to me and I shall return to you. Now, chapter 3 of Malachi, the, the key is um, the, the real, I mean, it's a very big chapter, it's a very, very important chapter of Navi because it's actually the last chapter of Navi. It's the last chapter of the prophets. And the real, the, 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 the message that we really need to take home from Malachi really begins in verse 22 of that third chapter. In those famous verses, and we're going to read all these verses, because there's kind of three of them. Moshe Avdi, Zichru Torat Moshe Avdi. Remember the Torah of Moshe, my prophet. Or my servant. This is not necessarily a call to kind of remember the Torah in the minute of its details, but the fundamental message of the Torah. 
which I commanded him at Chorev, I'll call Israel upon all Israel, statutes and laws. In fact, that's, once again, as you're saying, this is the centrality of the Torah. This is another reason why Malachi is kind of potentially identified with Ezra. Ezra may have had kind of a dual aspect to his career. One is a sofer, as a scribe, and one as a prophet. And as a prophet, he's known as Malachi, my angel or my messenger. And then he says, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. The next prophet after me, says Malachi, is Elijah. And Elijah, of course, was living, was li- sorry, Elijah was living back here. So Elijah is going to return. That is why the Jewish people have always believed that the Messiah will be preceded by the appearance of Elijah the prophet because prophecy is what starts it off. The restoration of prophecy is the beginning of the Messianic age, which means we realize that of all these clusters with their righteous kings and their clusters of prophets, it wasn't the prophets arose as a result of the righteous king. The prophecy and the divine inspiration produced the righteous leadership. I'm sending Elijah the prophet before the great day of God, which Tsefania has already told us, that's the Messianic age. And what is Elijah going to do? And I know I've gone over time, but just we need to stay with this for one more minute. In the most stunning, the most stunning conclusion to Navi, what is Elijah going to do? Is he going to come and say, No. He's going to return the hearts of the children to their parents and the hearts of the parents to their children. Intergenerational reconciliation. An understanding, a conscious understanding of the way that the past and the future connect. The fundamental underlying stream behind all history is the divine message. That is that. And, and of course, <laughs> being a prophet of Israel, he can't help but the last clause by going, and, and if you don't do that, I'm going to schmass everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Which means that, you know, we have, I'll just finish on this, we have, according to rabbinic tradition, we have 6,000 years of Jewish history. We're currently in the year 5775. We're about to go in, God willing, next week to 5776. And people go, oh yes, and Messiah must come by the year 6,000. Not necessarily. Because what happens if we don't fix the world? God has already, we have a Midrash, we have a famous Midrash that people don't like to think about too much. And God says, before this world was created, what was God doing? He was building worlds and destroying them. In other words, the Jewish people who need to produce the Messiah, and the Messiah has got to be something like Nelson Mandela times Mahatma Gandhi times 10 on crack. We have to produce that person and we have to produce that. It's not about producing a person. It's about producing an age, an epoch. It's about transforming humanity. All I'm saying is that each one of us and collectively have a responsibility 
to try and change the world. And we can do that if we change ourselves. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you.